Welcome to Heaven's Gate. Previously on Heaven's Gate. Only once every 2,000 years does the next level open its door, open its gate, and allow you to come in. I remember, you know, like standing out in my backyard, looking up at the sky, you know, asking for, for contact, for connection. Both of us wanted to leave this earth. We didn't like it here. We didn't feel like we belonged here. We all prepared to stay up all night, if necessary, to wait for the spacecraft. They're demonstrating to humanity that extraterrestrial technology can change human bodies into extraterrestrial beings. Change, it's just like that caterpillar has to drop. We're getting down to the nitty gritty here, people. This is what we're all about. And you either want to see this through to the end or, or maybe this isn't the place for you. And the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening. Good morning across all these many time zones. It's going to be a very, very exciting show this morning. So buckle down and get ready. A lot of surprises coming up. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AF. This is Art Bell. You may know him, you may not. But in the 1990s, Art Bell was everything in late night radio. He broadcasts out of a cinder block studio in the Nevada desert to hundreds of stations across the country. And on November 14th, 1996, Art Bell let the world know someone might be coming for us. There is something really big out there. I have no idea what it is. But it is not a camera flare. Whatever it is, it's real. And it is awfully big. The world had just discovered the Hale-Bopp comet hurling into view. And now as sci-fi fans around the Earth were peering at it and photographing it, one of those pictures seemed to show something in the background. Another huge, unidentified object flying right behind Hale-Bopp. Well, uh, Professor, what the hell is that? This object is four times, approximately four times, the size of the planet Earth, and it's headed our way. And they're very serious about this event, which may be happening, uh, that, this, that this event may go in a direction which is not evolutionary, but only time uh, will tell, and uh, time is of the essence. Members of Heaven's Gate were listening in on Art Bell that night. They weren't confused at all about what was behind Hale Bop. They knew this was their ticket home. This is Heaven's Gate, Episode 9, The Comet. I'll tell you who I am. T and Doe, whatever they want to call us. Whether or not you believe is up to you, you, you. We all have to deal with demons. We're trying to teach you how to prepare yourself. You are members of the next level. The next level.
This is our next to last episode of the Heaven's Gate podcast. And the stories you'll hear today are also the beginning of the end of the group. The violence that would eventually sweep the group from the earth begins to erupt in a context that's hard to even talk about. But throughout, the kindness of the group, one member to another, and the sweetness they showed each other persists. You'll hear about how much thought they gave to their goodbyes. But to get to all of that, we start with the comet. And 1996 was a heady moment for space fans. A professional astronomer named Alan Hale and an amateur named Thomas Bob had separately discovered this gigantic comet headed past Earth. Around the world, astronomers have been searching the night sky. Okay, we got the comet. A ball of ice, the Hale-Bob comet is 25 miles across and weighs millions of tons. And the closer it gets to the sun, the brighter it gets. Hale-Bob will become visible to the naked eye for 18 months, which is also super unusual. The last time we had a comet of this scale visible for this long was 1811, when people felt like something special was happening. Astronomers say it's like looking at part of the distant past. You're seeing uh, bits and pieces of the, of the solar system as it existed four or five billion years ago. Like the galaxy was making contact in a way it usually doesn't. Through history, comets have been seen as predictors of great events, part of the beauty and the mystery of our universe. So into this frenzied moment, in comes Art Bell. And Bell's not your regular radio host. He's the wizard of the weird, a friend of the cryptozoological. Four pictures of what is said to be a chupacabra from Mexico on my webpage now. And they are the darkest things you've ever seen. Bell's a conspiracy theorist and a good listener to whatever sounds amazing. And Hale Bob was red meat for Art Bell. Well, all right. Uh, now, to uh, Chuck Schrammett. Boy, I hope I'm saying that correctly. In Houston, Texas. Chuck, welcome to the program. Thanks, Art. Pleasure uh, to be here. Schrammett is an amateur photographer and astronomer. And he'd been looking at the comet through his 10-inch telescope. You have just taken a photograph. When did you take it? Tonight? I took it at uh, 6 o'clock this evening. 6 o'clock. All right. Uh, in this newest photograph you've taken, Hale Bob's going to come round the horn uh, and be most visible April, May, something like that next year, right? March, April, 97. All right, all right. Um, And I guess we all knew that, but a lot of people have felt something's going on with Hale-Bopp. Well, I have too. Uh, There's been a real lack of uh, pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope or any big observatories. And Art, I can tell you when they cut them off, it was about May, uh, end of May, 96. And so that got me all the more curious. I can smell when they're... Why would, why, why would they do that? Perhaps they saw something they felt might disturb people. And now maybe you've got it on film. Yeah, although uh, this thing, what I photographed tonight, just showed up. I mean, I, I have pictures of the comet from last night and the night before. This is a big thing. Uh, not far, I, I estimate maybe about 150,000 miles away from Hale-Bopp. Mm-hmm. Yes. It appears to be several times larger than the Earth. And there appears to be what looks like Saturn-like rings. They're, they're very flat. It's almost as if we're looking at them on edge. And, you know, 
I ran inside. I thought, no, it's just, it's just a star. And I look. I have a computer-generated star map. I can uh, tell ahead of time what stars are going to be in the background. Right. And there was no star there. I mean, just nothing. And uh, my heart starts going faster. What could it be? <sighs> I have no idea. That photograph, ladies and gentlemen, is now on our website. We're going to ask Courtney Brown here in a few moments what it's all about. Maybe he can help. I suspect he can. Professor Courtney Brown. Professor, did you hear Chuck? I heard it, and I was uh, actually delighted. He was a delightful guest and had lots of information from an astronomical, from an astronomical point of view. Now, yes, Courtney Brown is a Ph.D., but he's also written books on Bigfoot, Atlantis, the Great Pyramids, 9-11. You get the idea. Well, uh, Professor, what the hell is that? This object is four times, approximately four times, the size of the planet Earth, and it's headed our way. And they're very serious about this event, which may be happening, going in a direction, which is not, uh, that, this, that this event may go in a direction which is not evolutionary, but only time uh, will tell, and uh, uh, time is of the essence. There is a message being sent to someone who is listening but not hearing. It is essential that this person or persons wake up and listen now. Help will be there when he does. So somebody here is being sent a message. Art Bell and Dr. Courtney Brown are saying that the maybe possibly a spaceship behind the comet was definitely a message, a message that needed decoding. We're listening but not understanding. And at that moment, in a mansion outside San Diego, one listener thought that he understood. His name was Tall Odie or Michael Carrier before he joined Heaven's Gate. Doe called him Tall Odie because he stood taller than everyone else in the group. Tall Odie was an Art Bell fan, and he'd been listening to Art's theories about the new comet for a while. And maybe that night, he was lying in his cot in one of the house's seven bedrooms, perhaps sitting in his assigned seat in the big living room full of plastic lawn chairs. Or maybe Tall Odie was leaning on the kitchen island hearing Art Bell's voice echo off the stone tiles. We don't know. Afterward, Talodi rushed to tell Doe what he'd heard. Doe listened. And after careful consideration, he agreed. The sign was there. The ship had come. The gate to heaven was opening. And if Doe and his followers were going to slip through, they would need to move fast. I should tell you that the quote-unquote object behind the comet was not detectable in all the other gazillion photographs of this comet, but still, the Heaven's Gate crew were not troubled with doubt. It's December 22nd, 1996, 98 days before the Heaven's Gate suicides. This is the first day Heaven'sGate.com appears online. Around that time in Chico, California, Nancy Brown is trying to figure out the Internet. Nancy thinks it might be a new window into her son's group. And so I had had a computer, and I wasn't terribly experienced with it, and I wasn't on the Internet. So I took a a one-day class at the adult school about how to access and use the Internet. So I had 
found this Heaven's Gate site, and uh, then it's a red alert was flashing on the screen. Red alert, red alert, red alert. Nancy's right. The webpage has been blinking that same red alert for 20 years. Here's our resident scholar, Ben Zeller. Yeah, we have to uh, we have to remember this was that this was the 90s. So uh, flashing uh, GIF icons were uh, were all the rage. So it's flashing red alert. It sort of shoots out at you at the very top of the page. Red alert. It's in a sort of a comic sans font. Red alert. Hellbop. That's all in red. Uh, red alert. Hellbop brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Whether Hellbop has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member in the evolutionary level above human, the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that Hellbop's approach is the marker we've been waiting for, the time for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human, to take us home to their world, to the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. The page overflows with words. It's studded with links and transcripts and documentation. Imagine a day has come when everything you've wanted to say for 22 years is suddenly relevant and meaningful to everyone you meet. That's the energy coming off heavensgate.com. You you know, to, to unpack this a bit, they've been talking about graduating. They've been talking about being in a classroom for two decades. And, and here it is. I mean, so in some ways, if, you know, when you're listening to this, you should be nodding your head and saying, yeah, this is, this is what they said when they started in the 70s, that we're, we're out of here. On the other hand, there's something radically new here. And that is this idea that Hellbop Comet has a companion. Uh, it has a, a marker. That is the, the, the new change. That's what brings about the end. We're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us. Doe made this video shortly after Heaven's Gate learned about the coming of Hale Bob, and Doe's perspective is certain. We'll title this tape, Planet Earth About to be Recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Doe and his followers were ready to tell the world it's now or never. I'll tell you about a kingdom level beyond here. And if you want to go there, then you have to follow me because I'm the guy who's got the key at the moment. This is your chance. I'm here. And Doe is clearly so excited to be leaving. I can take you out of here. I can lead you into that kingdom level above human. That can't happen unless you leave the human world that you're in and come and follow me. Time is short. Last chance. And the confidence Doe shows in this video, he has good reason for it. Since 1994, Doe's followers have made great sacrifices to prove their devotion. They'd shown they wanted nothing more than to rise above their humanness, and they would do it through pain and through violence, through whatever they thought was necessary to get to the next level. More on that right after the break.
we're back. And you'll remember that from the beginning of Heaven's Gate, from the moment Bonnie Lou Nettles and Herf Applewhite ran into each other in a Texas hospital, the idea was to rise above the earth. The goal was to divest yourself of human attachments, of relationships and addictions, and you want to replace those base desires in yourself with dedication to God. That's what the next level required. Sex wasn't just frowned upon or just a sin. It was a barrier to heaven. And if you wanted to graduate with dough and meet Jesus on that spaceship, you needed to free yourself from lustful urges. But any human being in the history of human beings can tell you that is easier said than done. Group members struggled with their sexual desire for years. And at some point, around 1986, Doe wondered aloud whether something physical could be done to stem these urges, at least for the male group members. Now, Doe didn't push it. But the idea didn't go away either. By the early 1990s, men in the group were pleading with Doe to let them castrate themselves. Sawyer was one of them. Myself and Surody and Parkody ended up petitioning Doe to have the procedure. But Doe told me, he said he doesn't have any instructions to allow us to do that, so not to do it. Meaning that T, Bonnie Lou, had not sent Doe a signal from the heavens to let people castrate themselves. But then from there on, uh, whenever I had the feeling about it, I would say to him, you know, I, I still feel like I want to take, that, take you up on that option if it becomes an option that you feel instructed to offer us. I felt like I was proving my devotion to Tiendo in the next level by showing them that I was willing to do anything to uh, um, accomplish the task, to qualify for next level membership. A year or so later, he called up the craft. Meaning, don't use the telephone. And he, and he asked to t- talk to me and Sorodi. And he said, uh, come to our craft. And um, Livodi was going to do the operation. I need to tell you, this gets graphic. L- Livodi did, because Livodi worked for an archaeectomist, somebody that removes uh, testicles for c- cancer. So she learned the procedure of getting rid of the testicles. And uh, so she accumulated all the utensils for that, the, the tools. And so he said, who's going to go first? But before that, he asked me if I had any reservations. And I, I said, well, I said, my vehicle is not looking forward to it, uh, but I'm overriding my vehicle. So Livodi and Janodi thought, well, flip a coin, because that was what we did when we had something like that to decide, you know, that there was no right answer. And, uh, and so we flipped a coin, and whoever would flip the coin to win would decide whether they wanted to go first or not. And they flipped the coin, Sorodi won the toss, and he decided to go first. You saw it? Yeah, I was standing right there next to Doe. Doe was right here. This was the table. Sorodi yes. was sitting at it. 
Liberty was there. Jan already was standing, her, her assistant, standing where you are. Uh-huh. Doe was right here, standing where I, standing here on this side of the table. I was standing right where I am. We witnessed everything. Again, heads up to the squeamish. And uh, the incision and the snipping and, and the cauterizing. And then, uh, and then putting in a vent, which is like a little plastic tube, maybe about a half inch diameter that came to a point on one side. And then the sack started to get bigger and bigger. And he started to moan. His, uh, what do you call it, his testicle sack blew up like a balloon, maybe like about that big. It, it blew up because after she made the incision and cut the cords for the testicles and took the testicles out, which I almost fainted when it happened. Was that, that instantly? That was right, right after the operation? Yeah. And so Livodi came over to there and, and she tried to and she tried to figure out what was going wrong, you know, what was happening. And she thought maybe that the vents weren't letting, letting anything out so that the gas was building up inside there, you know, and the fluids and stuff. And so she tried to, she took the vents out and she tried to open it up a little better to redo those incisions. And it didn't change it. And it got worse. It got you know, bigger. It's, it's blowing up at this point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting bigger and, and he's in more pain from it. So uh, Doe was really upset. And uh, he said, uh, he said, I've done, I've done a horrible thing. He wasn't crying, but he says, take me to the police. And Liv Odie and Jan Odie and I, and Sir uh, was out of it. We said, no way. He said, we'll take care of it. This feels important. This procedure, all of it, was set in motion by the world that T and Doe created. Doe himself was the first to say he wanted to castrate himself to clear the path to heaven. But he backed away from that. And it's his students who urged him to move forward. And in this moment of crisis, of horror, Doe shrinks and shakes and says, this was a mistake. And his group says, no. Be quiet. It's okay. We're fine. We'll take care of it. And I think the only thing scarier than being the leader of a group and realizing you've made a terrible mistake is being part of that group and hearing your leader say he did something terribly wrong and realizing, yeah, he's right. Regardless, in this moment, Doe's group sprang into action. And we tried to figure out what to do. And uh, so we decided to. And we went to a, we got a motel that was near a hospital. And we called, I called a priest to ask them if they knew how to handle any, any kind of implications. Because maybe they had experience with it. Because maybe some, new, some priest would do that. Anyway, that was the idea we had. So I called the priest, and they didn't know anything about it. And, and we were also concerned whether it was legal or not. And so we were trying to stay hidden about it all. 
didn't, we didn't know what else to do, so we decided to take him to the hospital. And we decided that, uh, that I was going to just go into the hospital with him. And Liberty and Jenny were going to stay in the car. And then I was going to come out and tell them, you know, report to them so they could report to Doe. And so I went to the hospital and, uh, you know, they, they took him in and it wasn't a big emergency. I, so I told him that, you know, he was admitted and, uh, and I didn't know, you know, what the results would be. But then the nurse came out and told me that he was fine. You know, they, they just redid the incision and took care of it. And I told, I reported back and to Liberty and Jan Odie and, uh, and, and, uh, the nurses ended up loving Sirotti because he's a great guy. And uh, he was happy. He was glad it happened. And, and he came out of that and he was elated. He told you that? Oh, yeah. I was his partner because we, uh, we weren't instructed to tell anybody else. Not that we would have anyway, but he wanted to make sure that we weren't telling anybody else until he was ready to tell everybody. And he, he did a little while after that. But for a while... People started noticing that Sorority was extra giddy and he was losing the hair on his arms. <laughs> After Sorority did this and had the complications from the procedure, and Doe asked you all not to tell anyone, some other people were given permission to go ahead and do it as well. After yeah. that, I know it doesn't make sense uh, in our culture in the human culture as we see it. But uh, actually, it's not that unusual of a thought. You know, it's not extreme to get a vasectomy. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not extreme to have other things done, you know, to, to our bodies, to enhance our bodies, or, you know, to, to you know, uh, inject Botox into our lips and, you know, do all these other things that, you know, change our biology. But that one is like taboo. In fact, Doe talked about that, how that's almost worse than uh, uh, death for some people. You know, it's uh, to think that, you know, you were going to get rid of your sexuality entirely is like taboo in, in the human cult. Sawyer was never castrated. And after he left the group, he had a child whom he loves dearly. But... The fact that Sawyer almost went through with it doesn't haunt him. No, I didn't dodge a bullet. I, I mean, had I had the castration done, then uh, I would have had some other test. Or maybe I would have ended up being with them. But either way, it's the same thing uh, in the sense that I was put to the test. And it was either I was going to pass the test or I was going to be pushed out because I wasn't ready to, to go the full distance. Eight men in Heaven's Gate chose to be castrated between 1994 and 1996. Doe was one of them. And apparently he had a long and painful recovery. The thing to remember about these castrations, though, is that they weren't for the next level. Not exactly. Because the aliens weren't going to come and inspect the bodies of Heaven's Gate followers or even come near them. Now, when the aliens arrived, they would lift the group's spirits out of their bodies and award them new celestial bodies to live in, fresh and perfect. So the castrations were more about getting by on Earth 
while you waited to be saved. They were a way to ease one lifelong burden while you waited for Jesus and his spacecraft to come and rid you of the other ones. This is the group that heard the news about Hale-Bopp in 1996. They were sure what they wanted, and they were ready. These 38 people were Doe's devoted few, and Doe's last task was to lead them off the planet in the right way. That's in a minute. We're back. I remember those days and weeks in 1997 when Hale Bop was getting brighter. There was even a time when you could see the comet during the daylight. It was like a bright smudge in the sky. I still remember grabbing a telescope just to see a little bit more. It still looked like a bright smudge, but I didn't do the research that Doe and his followers did. I didn't find out the exact month and day and time that the comet would come closest to the Earth before slingshotting back out into the blackness. March 22nd, 1997 was that day. And March 22nd, 1997 was when the 39 members of Heaven's Gate planned to leave their earthly bodies and get on the spaceship hiding behind the comet. October 1996, T-5 minus months, the group moves into their mansion outside San Diego. And it's big. Seven bedrooms, room for everybody if they use bunk beds. It's also fancy. A Spanish-style building that's a tennis court, a swimming pool, a putting green, an elevator, a private citrus grove. They pay the written cash, seven grand a month. In January... T-minus two months. They buy 50 patches, like arm patches. They order them special to read Earth Exit Monasteries. In February, T-minus one month, they withdraw $5,400 from their bank account and take a group trip to Vegas. They do things that you and I might. They stay at the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino on the north end of the Strip. They go on a freefall ride called the Big Shot. And they gamble. Come on, drop. Come on. Come on, you guys. <laughs> Later, the members write down what they won in Vegas. $58.91. They also found $2.28 in change and $20 in bills. All the good luck. It all gets logged in the books. But they also go to a Buddhist monastery and have a lovely conversation there with the monk all about his robes. So that has fleece inside? Many questions about the robes. New zippers. Buttons. And then on February 20th, the group buys yards and yards of black and purple fabric for their new uniforms. They'll only wear the uniforms once, 
but they assume the clothes will be seen by thousands, maybe millions of people. So they choose carefully. March 1st, T-minus 22 days, they buy matching Nike sneakers, decade edition, black with a white swoosh. 39 pairs for $548.45. In a few weeks, Nike will announce they're discontinuing that style. The group also keeps paying its bills. They send in the rent. They pay a library fine of $2.50. They give $2 to a homeless person, all recorded in the ledgers. Also in March, they have a change of heart and alter those 50 arm patches. Rather than earth exit monasteries, they change them instead to say, away team. The group has always loved Star Trek. Away teams on Star Trek were the intrepid adventurers that captains sent down to explore a planet before they were called back to the ship. And this is, of course, exactly how the Heaven's Gate members see themselves. Also in March, the group takes day trips and videotapes them. You can see how fond the away team really is of the planet they're about to leave. They go to the Wild Animal Park in San Diego, and they ooh and ah along with the crowd at the bird show. Go to SeaWorld and ooh and ah at the trainer trying to stand on the back of two dolphins. They also go to the Gold Coast and visit a river T and Doe camped alongside in the early days. It's lush and green and raining a bit. And the group heads to the seaside to feed the sea lions. Hey, you guys, come on, come on. It's time to consume. And you can hear how patient and sweet they are with each other. What if you wave your arms up and down real wildly? I think that'll get them coming down the hill. Come on, come on. Come on. March 19th, T-minus three days. They record their exit videos, their final messages to the world. Most of these were shot in the backyard of that mansion, on green grass, sitting in white plastic lawn chairs. The members are all dressed similarly, in baggy shirts with their short haircuts. They don't seem comfortable with the spotlight on them, but they don't seem like they're trying to escape it either. This is a big moment, and most of them have been thinking of what to say to the camera for days or months, maybe years. Some say they are elated. This is the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I mean, I've been looking for this for so long. Um, this is Sirodi, or Stephen McCarter, as he was known before the group. Some, some would, would probably sit here and, I mean, somebody on the other side of this camera watching this tape would probably say, what's, what's going on? You know, you all... Um, must not have a life, or you, you're, you're deluded, or you're, or you're brainwashed, or whatever the thinking might be. I, I, it's hard to tune into. Um, from our perspective, from my perspective, this is, this is uh, Hudson. I mean, this is, this is the answer to everything. The members know 
These tapes are the last answers anyone who loved them is going to get, the final explanation for the choices they've made. Do we really hate our mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers? Do we really feel that way? This is Melody, or Margaret Richter, as her family knew her. I think one thing you have to realize that each of us, in order to succeed at this task, has to know that we are the next level mind inside this vehicle. We have to totally identify as a child of the next level, see ourselves as part of that family, and know that that's who we are, that everything that was the vehicle is behind us and it isn't us. The attachments that each of these vehicles had were very real. For each of us, there were things that we cared about, there were individuals that, were res- that the vehicle respected and loved and cared for very much. And in making the decision that we made to do this, we know that we broke hearts, we know that we hurt people, and we don't take that lightly. It, we didn't want to hurt anyone. Unfortunately, it's the individuals that these vehicles cared for the most that are actually the greatest threat to us. And we, and as a next level mind with an allegiance to an older member and wanting to succeed at this task, we had to be very aware that influences would take our vulnerabilities, those things that we cared about, and use them against us. And if they could, they would make us look backwards and forget where we were going. And that happened to a lot of our classmates. I mean, we're sorry to say that there are many that were with us that chose to give up an eternity of service with their creator, closeness, and an opportunity to be the fullest, to reach the fullest potential that their creator imagined for them, and they gave it up for a few months or years of closeness to another human. Um, And we prayed for the strength that we not do the same thing. We wanted to reach that potential. Some of the statements are more emotional than others. But all the members seem resolute in what they're about to do. And for a few, the moment could not come sooner. I want to say that Nerodi is of sound mind. This is Nerodi, or Susan Pope. And I'm really glad that I'm going to be losing this vehicle, shedding it of my own volition, because I'm really tired of this world and what it has become. Um, I feel no bitterness. I feel extreme gratitude and um, thankfulness to my older members, T and Doe. I know that all these words have been have, have been said before, but it's true. It's just a painful experience to to uh, recognize that hideousness has become the norm, and that people accept it out of ignorance because they've been programmed. And uh, a lot of it is not their fault, but it is their choice. Each person has a choice to make. And I've made mine, and I'm very happy and that I was given the opportunity uh, to have this choice. And I feel very, very excited about this time, and that we'll finally be able to leave as a class together. We've all worked very hard, and we've all tried to prove to our older members that we're worthy of the effort and sacrifice they made. Thank you. That's all we really have to say. (laughs) Not everyone shares, but they all have the chance. And when they're done, they turn the camera off. They leave their $7,000 a month mansion, and they head out for pizza.
they pay the bill of $417.27 and they catch a showing of the movie Secrets and Lies starring Brenda Bleppin. It's a sweet movie about a long lost family and regret. Friday, March 21st, at 2 p.m. they go to Marie Callender's in Carlsbad. They stay for less than 45 minutes. They pay the $350 bill in cash. They go home. Two members find six cents. They enter it into the group books. It's the last entry in their financial ledger. Saturday, March 22nd, the comet Hale-Bopp finally reaches its closest distance to Earth. For the last time, the members of Heaven's Gate sign out of the group's law, the book they've written in for years every time they've left their home base. Each member was supposed to write their name, how much money they have, and when they're expected back. Ben Zeller has a copy. It's haunting every time I pick this up. So I'm looking here at uh, the Com Center Daily Log. On Saturday, March 22nd, 1997, as the suicides are beginning, they all sign out for the final time from the Com Center Daily Log. Bernotti was the first to do it at 8.49 p.m. The last was Windotti, 7.20 p.m. So over approximately, what, uh, almost two hours, hour and 40 minutes, each member of the group writes their name. They check off that they have their ID and their passport. They enter their time that they're signing out. And there's a column here which says estimated time to return, ETR. And so normally in a conventional day, they would say, I'm, I'm leaving at 8 a.m. To, to go go to work, earn some sticks. I'm going to come back at 5 p.m. Or, or I'm going to return a library book, whatever it is. When they were signing out on this final day before their exits or their suicides, uh, I'm just looking down this column. I see some question marks. I see some blanks. I see some dashes. And I see some words. Avnodi wrote never. Dorodi wrote bye. Talodi wrote so long. Slavodi wrote never. My uh, favorite here is uh, Asta La Vista Baby from Glenodi. And then uh, probably the most profound of this is uh, at the very bottom. And the, the penmanship, I can't really tell exactly who wrote this. I think it's Dustodi. And wrote down, if instructed by T and Doe, as the time to return. So they were signing out of the planet. They were saying that they were leaving. And most of them said they were never going to return, or they would return only if T and Doe sent them back. It doesn't take two hours for, for 40 people, basically, to, to sign their names. That takes, what, two minutes. So this was a ritual. This was a ritual moment of departure. If you look at each time, there's about two to five minutes between between each each time. I like to imagine that they said something. I don't know, and I should be honest that I don't know. I wasn't there. Everyone who was there is gone. But I like to imagine that in those one to four minutes between between each person signing out, that they said something, or maybe they thought it, or maybe silently as, the, as they walked up to sign out, uh, just going through their head, they thought about what they were doing. It, we don't know what they did, but we know they did it with ceremony. We know that there was no reason they had to sign out on this daily log, and they chose to. This was a ceremonial ritual end of their lives. These last moments together, the group logged 
but did not videotape. They kept what happened for themselves. Next time, on the final episode of Heaven's Gate. You're looking at the site where 39 young men have been found dead and believed to be in a religious... The three previous nights at 8 p.m. exactly, the phone rang. Each time, by the time I got to the phone, whoever was there had hung up. My thought initially when I heard of the suicides is, well, maybe, maybe they went to the next level. I think anyone who had been part of that group, if they if they claim that they still believe in it, I think that's a probably a question they'd ask themselves almost almost on a daily basis. What what am I doing here? Basically, the kind of the kind of the ultimate question. Please, don't look at at my classmates and don't look at me as having died. We have not died. We have simply moved out of these vehicles. So we have this talent show, uh, and they're all bringing whatever talents they have. We're going to juggle. It is heartening to see this, because not even four months later, in the very same rooms in which they're laughing, their bodies, their vehicles are lying dead. I know they were not doing it out of any manipulation. I knew it was their joy to do that, even though it was a difficult joy. And it had, the sadness was part of it, was that they knew the world was gonna respond as if they were manipulated by this evil person. Heaven's Gate is produced by Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. Our team includes Ann Hepperman, Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, Josh Gwynn, Osa Secker, Jess Hackle, Dan Tabirsky, Peter Clowney, Casey Holford, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Lenski, and Chris Bannon. Special thanks to Ben Zeller. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. This show deals with some difficult topics, like suicide. And it can be hard for people to talk about suicide or get help if they're in danger. But all of us want you to know that help is available. There are resources available. People want to help you. One excellent resource is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free. It's confidential. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-800-273-8255. That number again is 1-800-273-8255. Or just remember, 1-800-273-TALK. Most renditions of extraterrestrials are the most grotesque things that you can possibly imagine, and that's ridiculous. They are perfectly beautiful bodies. They don't need to have hair that needs to be cut. They don't need to have curlers. They don't need to use makeup. Stitcher.